If you would, open up your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, we will be in verses 6 through 22. Our series theme, as you can see up here, is for the book of Ruth, expecting God's redemption even when we least expect it. Last week we had talked about how God is faithful to us even when we are faithless. He is our covenant keeper. And when he has made covenant with us, he will not fail. But that's such a hard truth to believe. Before we read this text, uh, sometimes preaching, well actually not sometimes, all the time, preaching is like cooking. You, you have very good ingredients, but sometimes a young guy like me just get so excited about the ingredients that you don't always know how to arrange the plate to make it look really good. But it's good food. So brothers and sisters, we're going to let the Word and the Spirit do the work. And uh, we're really excited. It was just one of those weeks where as I was preparing, I, was, I just couldn't quite get a great outline. So we're going to march through this text and watch the Lord work in our lives. Let's read Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 through 22. Then she, talking about Naomi, then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that daughters-in-law would be Orpah and Ruth, and she rose to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord has visited his people and had given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept, and they said back to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back. Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say that I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said to Ruth, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. (laughs) When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. 
And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Holy Father, we thank you for good food, spiritual food that you have given us in your word that we might taste and see that you are good. Father, even in the reading of the text, we see your redemption. Now, Father, as we explain the text, as we unfold the text, help us to keep our eyes driven here, knowing you are speaking to us and you're showing us what is true. But also, grant us the faith to believe it. Whatever we might be going through this morning, help us to learn to expect your redemption even when we least expect it. We ask all this, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen. Where is God when things aren't good? There's a story that one Associated Press member wrote after the death of Osama bin Laden, who was the orchestrator of the 9-11 attacks. And in this article, he wrote this, Nearly ten years after his wife was killed at the World Trade Centers, uh, Charles Wolfe was, still falls asleep each night on one side of his bed. On Monday, news of the death of the man who helped orchestrate that emptiness brought Wolfe a muted joy. He declared himself glad it was finally over, still aware that for him it never really can be. He said this, This is a feeling of happiness, but not jump up and down happiness. The idea of closure is something that really, really doesn't exist, to tell you the truth. What's happening in this article is a man who lost his wife in those brutal attacks on the World Trade Center, and he feels that things are not good. And even when there might have been some form of temporary earthly justice, it still left a gaping hole in his heart. Whether they are moments like that or whether they are smaller moments, we are often faced with times that are not good. Where is God when things are not good? What are the losses that you've experienced recently that you feel like will never be made right? What pain has that brought to you? What questions has it made you ask in the core of your being. Where is God when things aren't good? Where was God during 9-11? Where was God during Auschwitz? Where was God when that person drove their car into the homecoming parade? Where was God when that one Christian leader fell into scandalous sin? Where was God when you lost a child? 
or your child left home for college and you haven't seen them since? Where was God when the life you worked so hard for fell apart in a single day? Where was God when that Christian friend hurt you so deeply? Where was God when that trusted family member betrayed you so badly? Where was God when you cried out for help with that one sin, but instead you fell into an addiction? Where was God when you prayed day and night for that loved one in the hospital, but they still died? Where was God when there were those years and years of silence? My friends, what is your where is God moment? You might be living in it right now. Maybe, unfortunately, some of us are about to enter into that season. Maybe some of us are coming out of that season. But in big ways and small ways, we often have those moments where we say, where is God when things aren't good? Things are not good here. Let us remember something about the Bible. The Bible is not fiction. It is redemptive narrative about real people in real time with real sin and suffering. Ruth was a real historical person. Naomi and Orpah were real historical people. And they really went through tragedy. Where is God when things aren't good? See, in the context here, we know that 10 years has passed by. Let us always remember this whenever we read particularly uh, narrative portions of scripture. It's a lot easier for us to look at this and see 10 years of someone's life summarized, but it's a lot harder for us to actually enter into and experience those 10 years of suffering. But we do see, look back at verse 6, we see that the Lord had visited his people. It's the reversal of what happened in verse 1 of chapter 1. Verse 1 of chapter 1 says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. In verse 1, the Lord visited his people, but he visited them with covenant curses. But now he's visiting them with covenant blessing. And so when we see this, where it says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return, Hopefully, when you, when you saw that word appear numerous times that it rung a bell for you, actually, this word is in the Hebrew 12 times in this short little section. It's kind of like whenever you uh, have been maybe watching uh, TV recently and that Burger King commercial comes on over and over and over again. It makes you realize, I think Burger King has a commercial spot during this show. Okay. When you read the Bible, when a word is repeated three or more times, it's trying to get you to see a theme. That's how we should read the Bible. And here's what's interesting, is that this theme of returning is, it's really this picture of this. Is that Naomi and Orpah and Ruth, they stand at a crossroads. They stand at a fork in the road, and they can either do this. They can go one way, or they can go another way. How does this connect with everything else I've been saying? When things are not good in your life, you can believe one thing or you can believe another. You can go down one path of believing that 
God can actually redeem this, or you can go down another path and say, no, he can't. So my friends, which path are you going to go down? Where is God when things aren't good? And when things aren't good, do we go to Moab or do we go to Bethlehem? You see that in verse 6. Naomi's in the fields of Moab. She heard that the Lord had visited his people back in Bethlehem. So she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And they get to this moment where they're getting ready to return to Judah. But then it's as if Naomi stops and she's addressing them. Will they go to Moab or Bethlehem? You can imagine that for Naomi, as she's thinking about what would it mean for me to go back to Bethlehem, no doubt, as you see later, she's thinking, what would people think about me? Here's one thing amazing about the Bible. The Bible will often repeat its own themes in later books. Do you know what's really cool about this instance in the book of Ruth? Does it not sound a lot like the parable of the prodigal son? Someone went off into a far country. They left the land. They left their gods. They left the people. And now they have to make this humiliating trip after years of sin and suffering. They have to come back. And by the way... Naomi's pretty bitter, and the younger son was probably like that too. And by the way, Naomi's probably coming back just because of the bread, not necessarily because of God. And remember, that's what the younger son did too. He says, well, at least, you know, I can maybe earn my way back into my father's good graces, but at least he has bread. What were the people of Bethlehem going to think of Naomi, this betrayer, this faithless one? But what would they think of Orpah and Ruth? Remember I mentioned last week about the Moabites. The Moabites were, uh, uh, Israelites did not like them. Uh, it was not good. Moab had a history of attacking Israel and trying to lure the people of Israel into sin. The reason why Ruth, almost until the very end of the book, is always going to be described as Ruth the Moabite, is to remind you that she's not an Israelite. It's to remind you that she comes from the land where they worshipped Kamash, not Yahweh. She comes from the land of people who would be the epitome of sin for the Israelites back in that day. For Orpah or Ruth to come back to Bethlehem would have been probably actually pretty dangerous. And you can actually see, as you read later in the book of Ruth, that there's quite the town stir whenever they see Ruth because they know she's a Moabite. But here's the thing that we know about the land of Bethlehem. The land of Bethlehem is where God said he would be. The land of Bethlehem, it was given to God's people so that they would be there and he would be their God. To go back to Bethlehem is to go back to Yahweh. But what about Moab? Moab was the foreign land. Moab was not the land of Yahweh in the sense of his special redemptive covenant people. Yes, God is everywhere at all times, but in the Old Testament he had given a precise location where he would really be with his covenant people, and it was not Moab. 
Moab was where they worshipped idols. Moab was where they fell into sin. Moab was where they lived as if there was no king. I think it's really interesting here that maybe we can even point this out. Naomi grew up, as it were, in a Christian home. Orpah and Ruth did not. And there's almost a picture here of this, is that we actually see the temptations that maybe a young Christian can face right after their conversion, or at least right after their hearing the gospel. Naomi, who grew up in a Christian home, she had left Bethlehem. She had left God's people. She had left, as it were, the church. She left Bethlehem full, but she returned empty. My friends, let us be reminded of this. Our idols, idols are anything we worship in the place of God, our idols will always leave us empty, even if it takes years. Our idols always give us the sense of bitterness in the end rather than sweetness. But here's what happens when things are not good. You see, when things aren't good, we can be tempted to do one of two things. We can be tempted to say, that this is actually a season of life where I need to be reminded that the Lord is the only safe place. You can go back to Bethlehem. Or, when things aren't good, you say, well, I'm going to try out different idols. Or, I'm going to keep trying the same idol, but I'm going to redouble my efforts. You just keep trying to run away from God. You keep trying to, 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 to find the satisfying life. Maybe you've grown up in a Christian home and when you go through times of trial and tribulation, you begin to say, well, I tried this whole Christianity thing, but it's not working. It's often what people like Naomi feel like. But then there are people who did not grow up in a Christian home like Orpah and Ruth. The temptation is that after you hear the gospel and you might be tracking along with it, and, but then all of a sudden you're faced with your really first time of trial and tribulation as a professing Christian, and you really have two options yet again, keep pursuing the Lord or go back to what you know. I've seen this happen in ministry. I've seen this happen in ministry for people who grew up in Christian homes and non-Christian homes. We see this when Jesus tells the parable of the soils. That sometimes people sprout up and it seems like they're really professing to be a Christian and they're growing and they're hearing the gospel they're reading books, they're listening to podcasts, they're attending church, they're doing all these different things, and then all of a sudden, an obstacle in the road. Things are not good. And they begin to say, well, where is God? And actually, actually interestingly, it's almost as if this, it's almost like a rubber band has been pulled back, and for a long time they have resisted their sinful lifestyle, and then when they hit a period of suffering, shoo, and they go headfirst back into their old life. What would Orpah and Ruth do here? Where would they find rest? You see that, actually, when Naomi talks to them. Look at verse 9. The Lord grant that you may find rest. That's what every single person in here is looking for. Whether you are as young as Valerie, who actually I just looked down and she's not there anymore. Um, 
Whether you are young or whether you are old, we are always looking for rest, but once again, we have two options here. Will we pursue the path of the Lord or the path of our idols? Will it be Bethlehem or Moab? Where is God when things aren't good? Here is what's so fascinating amidst this. Is that this is not just an individual, isolated event that really doesn't matter to us. Getting Ruth and Naomi to Bethlehem, it mattered for the history of the world. Getting Ruth and Naomi back to Bethlehem, spoiler alert, uh, this has been around for uh, like, you know, 3,500 years, so uh, let me just, you know, give you a little, you know, it's not a spoiler anymore, that's your own fault. Um, David is going to come from Ruth. And David would be born in Bethlehem. And the greater David would be born in Bethlehem. My friends, here is what you see amidst the isolated moment of your life when you see that things are not good and you might be asking, where is God? Here is what God is doing. He is orchestrating everything in all of world history to bring about his redemption. And you don't always see it. And it's difficult. Remember, it's a lot easier for us to stand here and look at this and say, well, you know, Naomi, you should just believe more. My friends, it's a lot easier for us to stand outside of people's sufferings and look at them and say, well, you just need to have more faith. Rather than to be in it. But my friends, even when you're in it, God is working all things for his glory and your good. Will it be Bethlehem or will it be Moab? There's also another fork in the road. When things aren't good, are you Orpah, not Oprah? Are you Orpah or Ruth? See, the context here is that <laughs> we see Naomi equivalent herself in verse 8 she says as you have dealt with the dead and with me the context here is that Naomi sees herself and her daughters-in-law as completely hopeless as the walking dead because certainly in that society when a widow lost or when a woman became a widow when she lost her husband it meant the loss of financial security it meant alienation it meant possible destruction it was basically what we say when you get to the end of your rope that's where they were Naomi sees this in herself she sees this in Orpah and Ruth and so she gives them the option she says look like why don't you just go back and be with your people find someone else to marry I do think it's interesting here that it seems pretty clear that Naomi is pretty much only focused on the physical, tangible stuff and needs and not the spiritual. A sign of a maturing Christian, a maturing church, a sign of a maturing church and a maturing Christian is whenever we don't merely just pray for the physical, but we also pray for the spiritual. 
Sometimes when we get in these seasons of life and we realize things are not good, especially in our day and age, the microwave age, the Google age, instant gratification age. Now hear me this, you should pray for the physical. God cares about the physical. He cares about your pain. I'm not, I'm not don't go to the other extreme. Sometimes people can do that. No, 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 pray for the physical. Pray for the relief of suffering. But also, when you're in that season of life when things aren't good, pray that God would work in your heart. Pray that God would work in this other person's heart. A maturing Christian in a maturing church is a church that does not just pray for the physical, but also prays for things like conversion, sanctification, release from addiction, covenant children who believe, revival and renewal, that the preaching of the word would be believed, that grace would be embraced. We need to pray for the spiritual, not just the physical. So what about these two different paths of Ruth and Orpah? Let's look at Orpah first. We do see her, that the moment that she's faced with this season when things are not good, remember Orpah's name is, is actually meaning neck, meaning that she turned her neck away from her mother-in-law and she left. That's often how we end up and, and you have seen people you've seen family members you've seen friends you've seen it maybe on the news where you've seen what's called this what are we, what are we calling it deconstructionism famous professing Christians who are no longer Christians anymore you see in those times when times are not good the answer is not to turn away, to turn your neck. But the answer is to turn toward. But that's hard. That's, we're all tempted with that. And were it not for the grace of God, we would all turn away. Brothers and sisters, let me remind you of what the Bible teaches. If you could fall away, you would fall away. If you could fall away from God's grace, you would. But thank goodness God is faithful to us even when we are faithless. What about Ruth? It's interesting here that in verse 14, instead of turning away, Ruth, it says, clung to her. This word could also give the picture of being welded to someone. It's, uh, it's kind of the picture of whenever um, I've seen, you know, a two little guys get in a fight in football practice and then a big offensive lineman just come and bear hugs one of the guys and just, guy can't do anything no matter how much he just like kicks and screams. It's amazing. And Ruth just bear hugs Naomi. <laughs> Clings to her. She doesn't turn her neck. But then she gives this amazing confession. Look at this. Look at verse 15. Oh, excuse me. Look at uh, verse 16. Imagine her saying this as maybe Naomi's trying to maybe push her back and turn her away. Do not urge me to leave you. Do not urge me to return from following you. Listen, for where you go, I will go. 
Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die. Where you are buried, I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and also. If anything but death parts us. And Naomi said no more. Well, I hope so. Actually, what's interesting here is that Ruth is using covenant language. Because actually what's happening here, my friends, is this. As strange as it is, God is going to use a Moabite to reveal who he is to his sinful people. When things aren't good, we are often tempted not to go down the path of Ruth, but of Orpah. But what does God do? Because often life feels like God has turned his neck against us, right? Where is God when things aren't good? My friends, he is bear-hugging you, even though you don't feel it. The reality of God, the God of the Bible, is a God who has covenanted himself to his people. And once you come in union with Jesus Christ, he is always there clinging to you. No matter what frowning providence you might be going through. It's a strange thing. Often God allows us to go through these seasons where it is so uncomfortable. And from the depth of our being, we're saying, God, where are you? He's right there. He's, He's clinging to us. We're out at the Cotton Bowl. By the way, two lame one. Um, I was in. Uh, I was in this. We were watching the bowl game with a couple of my other friends, and when I got to Tulane, I got there in 2009, and we were still recovering the football program from Hurricane Katrina. And we went through some really hard years. Uh, we had guys who loved Tulane and that football program more than anything, and they they. We worked so hard for that, but we never saw that success. And actually, when Tulane finally won the game, one of my buddies, Carlos Wilson, who was a walk-on wide receiver, he was a year below me, and as a walk-on, he knew especially what it meant to be committed to a program through thick and thin. And Carlos, very much unlike me, is still very fit. And it was one of those moments, because in that room with those people, a lot of those guys were my close friends, but probably no one was closer to me than Carlos. And he came to me, and as soon as we locked eyes, we just started weeping like little babies. And he just bear-hugged me. And we were ugly crying. It was just, you know, not good. Why did that mean so much to us? It meant so much to us because we had been through the losses. And then when things were good, it was amazing. My friends, God is not just with you when you win. He is with you when you lose. God is not just with you when things are good. He is with you, especially when things are not good. Amen?
I wonder what it would mean to be this type of a church, a clinging culture rather than a cancel culture. A church that would cling to each other no matter what suffering and sin comes our way. Because we already deal enough with cancel culture today where any sort of anything in someone's life, whenever we eventually discover it, we're so ready to publicly cancel them. Do you not see how exhausted people are from this? What do you think it would look like if actually it was kind of like our marriage vows that we take when we say in sickness and in health, I am covenanting myself to you. Do you know that's what your membership vows essentially are? You are clinging to this group of people and we're not very awesome. But you're clinging to us because we need you and you need us because that is how we are reminded of what God is doing to us. Amen? It's very interesting here that Ruth is actually maybe even the picture of the prodigal father who runs after his lost wayward son and just embraces him, just bear hugs him. My friends, where is God when things are not good? He's clinging to you. Where is God when things are not good? And when things aren't good, will we be Naomi or will we be Mara? Look at verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women of Bethlehem said, is that Naomi? Naomi would say to them, do not call me Naomi. Remember, Naomi means pleasant. Do not call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Now, maybe you have a footnote in your Bible by Mara. Look at it. Mara means bitter. Actually, it's very interesting because this episode is supposed to remind us of something that happened in Exodus 15. God's people have been delivered from Egypt. They crossed through the Red Sea. And they get to the first point where their faith is going to be tested yet again. And they're in a place, and it seems like they have water, but that water is bitter. And literally, the Hebrew word, there's the same word here. It is mara. And because they don't expect God to bring redemption, you grow in bitterness. You grow in being mara. But notice this. Notice that this is an identity marker for Naomi. She says, this is forever. This is just who I am now. I'm no longer Naomi. I'm Mara. We do need to hear about what Scripture says about anger here. You see, bitterness is essentially the exact opposite of faith. Faith is believing that no matter what situation comes into your life, God can and will eventually redeem it. Bitterness is saying, I don't think he's going to do it. Bitterness is losing hope. Bitterness is saying, I don't think God cares and I don't think he will ever care. And my friends, if we're honest, every single one of us in here has an anger issue. You see, fixed Bitterness is living as if God cannot redeem you. Let me ask all of us, 
just some reflection questions about how we might see bitterness in our lives. Is there hostility towards others? Aggression? Are you offended by the smallest thing? Has your anger actually driven you now into full-on depression? Do you just live always pessimistic about life? Do you have an overwhelming fear of anything because anger is at the heart? Are there addictive habits that you use now to numb your pain? Do you live with lifelong regret? Do you live constantly angry at yourself? Are you playing the blame game and pointing fingers at other people? Are you gossiping? Are you trying to take revenge or are you just plotting revenge in your mind? Do you find yourself having anger outbursts even over the smallest things? Are you someone who is known as being easily irritated? Are you known as someone who is jealous or someone who is trying to prove themselves? Are you wearing a mask to act like everything's okay? Are you known as someone who just excommunicates people from your own life? Are you expecting people to do more for you than you do for them? Are you someone who never lets go of the past and continually brings it back up so that you can prove a point? Are you someone who nitpicks about everything? Constantly critical, or you'll never let anyone in, or you're defensive over every opinion and decision? Do you find yourself exploding whenever anyone fails to include you? For my kids in the room, but then also for us grown-up kids? Are you livid with your parents for favoring one of your siblings above you? Are you always explaining your anger to people saying, but you don't understand? Do you curse at people and call them names? Do you just long to find a way to cancel them? Do you make passive-aggressive posts about them? Do you have angry rants on the internet do you get angry when someone tells you that you were wrong and your anger is intended to make them feel bad about convicting you? Are you unforgiving of others because really you're not convinced that God has forgiven you? Do you always have to be right? David Pallison is really helpful here when he talks about how do we respond to our anger issues. For one, we can say, yes, I know I've got an anger problem and I feel guilty and discouraged about it. That's one way. Another way is this. Well, maybe I have anger problems, but I know other people who have a lot bigger anger problems than I do. <laughs> I wish they were here to hear this sermon. No, I don't have a problem with anger. I've got good reasons to be angry and bitter. This often turns into the victim-only mindset. We're only thinking about what other people have done to us rather than how we have responded wrongly. Or we can do this, we can just say, well, this is just my personality. Another option when we think about anger issues is that we say, well, I might get angry sometimes, but I'm not really an angry person. Another way Pallison gives us, he says, no way, I don't have an anger problem. I've found that anger is the empowering solution to personal problems and social injustice. Lastly, he gives us another one, he says, well, I hardly ever get angry. Life's usually been pretty good, and I try to keep the problems in perspective. My friends, every single one of us has an anger problem. Because every single one of us 
has been through moments when we've realized things are not good. We live in a fallen world. And anger is not the opposite of love. It is love expressed in a different way. If I love my son, and if someone comes up and hits him, and if I just did nothing, then y'all would say, you are an awful parent. But if I got rightly angry, then you would say, that's probably the right response. We get angry because of something we love. But the problem is that whenever we love something or someone more than God, we get angry for sinful reasons. Where is Naomi here? I think it's clear that Naomi seems to be more focused on the physical, tangible things in her life rather than God. And when things aren't good, when she's standing in this, this area of realizing my life is awful, and she no longer expects God's redemption, she just boils in bitterness. And some of us in this room are doing that same thing. But my friends, where is God whenever you are most bitter? He's clinging to you. And angry people are hard to cling to. But that's what he does. My friends, God does not love you because he's in the mood to love you. God loves you because he is a covenant-keeping God and he has promised to always give you his love even when you are most sinful, even when you're in the worst suffering, even when you're most bitter. Even when he hasn't given you all the answers, he's still clinging to you. So my friends, when things aren't good, are we going to interpret life in the way of Mara or actually in the way of Naomi? I've given you these two different paths, but really the question is this, what's going to empower us to choose the right path? Well, as I mentioned earlier, this certainly is a picture of how God loves his sinful people. And how ultimately Jesus is the greater Ruth. He's the greater friend. Jesus is the one who clings to us when we did not want to cling to him. Jesus is the one who committed himself to us when we did not want to commit ourselves to him. Jesus is the one that now that we're in union with him, he is redeeming us in every single area of life, even when we are faithless. Jesus is the one who always chose the path of Bethlehem and of Ruth and of Naomi. No matter how much things were not good in Jesus' life, and Jesus suffered. He suffered like no one else has suffered. If things were ever not good in a human being's life, they were not good in Jesus' life. But he always chose Bethlehem. He always chose Ruth. He always chose Naomi. But in the end, what did he receive? On the cross, he received Moab. On the cross, he received Orpah, because God literally turned his back on him. 
And on the cross, he received the ultimate bitterness, the ultimate Mara in God's wrath. Which is why whenever we do the Lord's Supper and wine is bitter, it reminds us of that. And he took Moab, and he took Orpah, and he took uh, Mara for you on the cross so that you might receive life and mercy and grace. And it is as you see this Jesus Christ that then when you're faced with a time when things are not good, you can remember that God is always good. And that in the darkest moments, he will bring redemption. Amen? That is our God. Let's pray. Father, we're asking that we would see the hope that is only in Christ. Hope even in the worst of times. Father, help us to expect your redemption even when we least expect it. Help us to see that when things are not good, you are always good, even when you don't feel it. And if there's one message that all of us, me included, can walk away with today, help us to know that in Jesus Christ, you are clinging to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We ask all this in your name. Amen.